Thank you very, very much for that very generous and very warm introduction. In fact, I just finished my MST in intellectual history last year, so now I'm doing the MPP, very fancy, non-academia-related practical degree. But um, I'm very excited to present today because I've been following the intellectual history seminar since its inception, and it is an honor to be able to present and to really set up the stage for, I think, broader engagement around a topic that I've been involved in for the past few years, and also for sort of the development of critical scholarship around it. At the very outset, I want to start off by saying what this talk is not about, because you've had some online engagement on this, and some of you might, might have come from those online engagements, so I welcome uh, your sort of so your inputs and your objections as they might be. Um, this talk is not about um, Kashmiri queerness or any form of Kashmiri queerness. This talk is about the development of a particular strand of Hindu nationalism, which has subsumed queerness within its ambit and weaponized the language of LGBTQ plus rights to justify the abrogation of Article 370 in particular and the larger sort of occupation of Kashmir. Right. So this is tracing developments within Hindu nationalism. It's tracing its weaponization of LGBTQ plus rights in Kashmir. It does not um, theorize or speak about Kashmiri queer resistance also, although I'm happy to share about work being done in Kashmir uh, by several friends and organizations that I've sort of spent a lot of time with. But again, this, this comes from a very different space. So it's going to have three focus points today. So one is on the diffuse origins of this narrative that presents India as emancipatory and Indian presence in Kashmir as particularly beneficial for LGBTQ plus in Kashmir. The second thing, it theorizes around the implications for such a discourse for queerness within India and for queer people within India as a whole. And the third thing is it sheds a little light and sort of tries to grapple with frameworks to oppose this form of construction within India and within the Indian queer movement in particular, but Indian progressive movements at large, right? Uh, this builds upon uh, my own positionality, right? So as a dominant caste Hindu Indian working uh, as a cisgender queer man, I am both the perpetrator of this, but also the exact kind of person who this discourse is produced by and produced for. So in many ways, this is something that I've grappled as, um, as something that I have almost been expected to reiterate. And then I've taken the sort of time to, to unpack it, working upon my experiences within queer activism in India, and then my work in Kashmir. So the broad theoretical framework that I'll be working here will be with Jasbir Pua's homo-nationalism, it'll be sort of seeing how Hindu nationalism has evolved or rather morphed from its initial sort of disdain for LGBTQ plus rights into a more sort of generative acceptance for LGBTQ plus rights in a very limited way and its subsequent weaponization. I'll also be sort of touching upon work done around homo-Hindu nationalism by people like Nishant Padhyay and Aishik Sarkar, some very important work done by Natasha Kaul and Ananya Kabir on the sort of construction of Kashmir and its gendered imaginary within the Indian imagination, on Mona, done by Mona Bhan, Atharzia, and Samreen Mushtaq on warfare to welfare, and the sort of narrative that's changing in Kashmir, particularly now. 
And then a little bit by Rahul Rao and Srimoy Ghosh about what it means to sort of oppose this within an Indian constitutional framework. I think uh, before I begin, we have to acknowledge that this is a unprecedented moment of sort of state subjugation in Kashmir. Several writers, journalists, academics are in jail, most often under acts like the Public Safety Act and the UAPA, which are non-bailable. Uh, there has been a clampdown on freedom of speech, and there have also been heightened instances of atrocities after the abrogation of Article 370 and the lockdown and complete communications blockade that followed. So I think this is also a moment that's been theorized by a lot of people as a transition of the Indian state's presence in Kashmir from being that of a colonial power to a settler colonial power, right? And I'll touch briefly upon why the sort of language of LGBTQ plus rights is particularly relevant in that transition. So I'm gonna start off with a story since I've already um, set the sort of theoretical framework. And the story sort of begins in 2013, in December, 2013. Um, in December, 2013, you have the BJP rising its phenomenal ascendance under the stewardship, stewardship of Narendra Modi, who's then prime ministerial candidate, and its sort of position within the Indian election campaign as the front runner and widely touted as succeeding the Indian National Congress as the sort of next party to govern the country. Um, the BJP has historically maintained its stance on Kashmir as one of opposing any form of autonomy and supporting complete forms of integration of Kashmir into the Indian Union. Uh, there has there had been, at least for a while, before the sort of arrival of Modi and the preeminence of Kashmir on the national stage, once again, under Hindu nationalism, a sort of quietened rhetoric around Article 370 that had presumed that Article 370 would stay as is, where very few had thought it possible that Article 370 could ever be removed. So the first thing that happens is in the first week of December 2013, Narendra Modi leads the first election rally in Kashmir by the BJP in Jammu. This is the Lalkar rally. It's the biggest rally that the party has held in Kashmir um, in, the re in recent history. And it sets the tone for the BJP's policy around Kashmir and how Kashmir will feature in the national conversation around the national elections, which are to be held just six months later in May 2014. So in December 2013 at the Lalkar rally, Narendra Modi makes a provocative speech in which he questions the need to continue with Article 370. Now, Article 370 is the provision that grants autonomy to Kashmir under the sort of instrument of accession signed by the then Maharaja of Kashmir, Hari Singh, with the Indian state that essentially provides for a greater degree of autonomy to Kashmir than, of, than, than granted to any other state in the Indian Union, and also sets the tone for a sort of transition into independence after the holding of a plebiscite in the region. Right? So Article 370 is incredibly important to Kashmir primarily because it um, gives the region autonomy and protects its sort of special status, but also it prevents people from buying land in the region, therefore preventing a settler colonial project, and from voting in the region, therefore allowing for a degree of democratic participation that cannot be influenced by India, which is much larger, both in size and in population. So Modi sets this tone and makes the provocative claim as to why do we need Article 370 anymore, and it makes national headlines. That evening on Arnab Goswami's Newsa, which is the most watched English news television debate over the course of the election campaign, the topic of discussion is Article 370, with multiple panelists coming in, weighing in, 
and sort of building this narrative for the eventual abrogation of Article 370 and for the need to subsume Kashmir within the Indian Union under very strong nationalist rhetoric. Just 10 days later, on the 11th of December 2013, the Supreme Court of India, in a landmark shocking verdict, overturns the Delhi High Court verdict passed not too long ago, which puts a very controversial law, Section 377, back on Indian statute books. Now, Section 377 is India's anti-sodomy law. It was introduced in the 1860s under uh, British imperialism to criminalize sodomy and has over the years been used to specifically target the LGBTQ plus community um, as it prohibits um, carnal intercourse against the order of nature. So this became, again, an incredibly large event, right? And it led to the politicization of LGBTQ plus rights right at the heart of an election campaign. Never before had you seen LGBTQ plus rights being discussed in the political sphere in such a fervent manner and at such scale. Because the Delhi High Court in 2009 had already struck down Section 377, calling it unconstitutional, you'd seen a flowering of the LGBTQ plus movement in India. You'd seen people come out, you'd seen sort of corporate participation, also sort of legal action being taken that allowed for a certain set of rights to be granted to LGBTQ plus persons, and a lot more visibility for LGBTQ plus persons in general on the national stage. All this visibility coalesced in protests against Section 377. There was a global day of outrage. Uh, it became an international issue. There were various ways in which the queer issue um, and specifically the Supreme Court's verdict on Section 377 became a rallying cry for the queer community to demand better from politicians, right? This became a moment when Indian queers started asking politicians, what is your stance on LGBTQ plus rights? That night on Arnav Goswami's News Hour, the topic of discussion was Section 377. Now, Section 377 and Article 370 sound very similar to each other, and that evening were confused for each other several times. Over the next few months, the two provisions started getting confused so often by politicians, by LGBTQ plus rights activists, by Kashmiri sort of activists, and by everyone involved that it almost led to all, some comical situations. In fact, a satire news article uh, put out a piece that um, said a BJP spokesperson was defending Section 370 um, or, or the removal of Section 370 on Arnab Goswami's Musa, but ended up demanding the removal of Section 377 instead, prompting a question, does the BJP now support LGBTQ plus rights? And so amidst this confusion, amidst these sort of conversations around Section 377 and Article 370, a whole array of new provisions were born. So online, you could find Article 377, Section 370. One was at the Indian Constitution, one was the Indian Penal Code. People were mixing up one for the other, resulting in a sort of discussion of the two, two legislations. And then by, by extension, a discussion of queerness and Kashmir in the same breath, which simply had never happened before. At this moment, you saw the politicization of LGBTQ plus rights take a peculiar turn. The Indian National Congress, under the sort of presidentship of Sonia Gandhi, released an unprecedented statement that came out against the Supreme Court verdict and in favor of LGBTQ plus rights. This was the first time that a national political party had taken a stance on the issue, and it led to a lot of liberal sort of support for the Congress's position and more importantly, a lot of liberal outrage as to why the BJP had been silent on the issue and in fact 
while its own leaders, several of them, had made statements explicitly supporting the Supreme Court's verdict and coming out um, with sort of homophobic remarks. Amidst this, there was a lot of online conversation generated around these two provisions, right? And the, the general nature of conversation around these provisions when they were connected to each other was something along these lines. You had progressive individuals who were calling upon the BJP to um, take a stance on LGBTQ plus issues, appealing to um, moderate leaders in the BJP and calling upon the prime minister himself, the prime ministerial candidate then himself to make a statement on LGBTQ plus rights. In response, you had trolls and sort of right-wing activists and right-wing commentators primarily made up of online, predominantly middle-class, upper-caste men responding with, why do you care about Section 377 when you should be caring about national security? So in many ways, Section 377 and Article 370 were pitted against each other. And apart from the confusion, you saw the emergence of a narrative that said that national security was more important than LGBTQ plus rights, and that all those arguing for LGBTQ plus rights were arguing against national security, against India's interests, effectively saying all LGBTQ plus activists or those supporting LGBTQ plus rights were anti-national, a term that's been thrown around more often than we'd like in the present day and age, right? So this was very classic and it re resembled the standard definitions of Hindutva that we've come to sort of engage with over the years. Paula Bacheta in a, a remarkable work has shown how Hindu nationalism has systematically excluded queers and it manages to be sort of um, presenting masculinity as this desired ideal and queerness as one of its fundamental threats. So tracing the evolution of Hindu nationalism, she, she's shown through sort of publications by the RSS and by other sort of ideological arms of Hindu nationalism that actually queerness is systematically excluded. And in fact, the project of Hindu nationalism is diametrically opposed to the project of queerness. And this was what played out in 2013. And this was the sort of debate that took place online, particularly within this strand. I was fascinated by this strand and traced it by collating large amounts of Twitter and Facebook data and seeing how these two arguments placed together evolved over the years, particularly with sort of different social and political contexts. Every time you had a court hearing on Section 377, an animated discourse around LGBTQ plus rights, you saw a similar spike in conversations around Article 370 and a reiteration of this discourse, which sort of dismissed anyone arguing for LGBTQ plus rights as somebody who was not in favor of national security. Things change, of course. 2014 saw the, the election of Narendra Modi as prime minister with an overwhelming majority. Uh, you saw the sort of complete systematic um, presence of a Hindu nationalist government in India after almost a decade. And you saw a sort of changing of narratives around a lot of social issues because the party that was once in opposition was now in a position of power. In 2018, there was a major Supreme Court verdict that overturned the 2013 verdict. In essence, a constitution bench of the Supreme Court of India decided that its previous verdict was erroneous and said that Section 377 had to be struck down, use the grounds of privacy, use the grounds of human dignity, and essentially enabled LGBTQ plus rights um, to be validated through law 
in this context. Right? This was a moment of great celebration, again, made major headlines. It was seen as um, the new Independence Day for LGBTQ plus Indians. Uh, Mumbai's Queer Pride Parade was actually called the Queer Azadi March in a, another strange sort of coalesced, coalesced um, nature of Kashmiri sort of resistance movement vocabulary and queerness. And you had this sort of overwhelming joy around this overturning of a colonial era law. Interestingly, this was a, a narrative that proved to be quite detrimental in the long run. Posters, placards, and other sorts of forms of protest celebrated this Independence Day as the overturning of a sort of vestige of British morality and Victorian morality and imperial law. It positioned India as a safe haven for LGBTQ plus rights before colonization and built into this narrative that before the British arrived, there was actually a wide degree of respect for queerness within India. The strand that picked up on this was the Hindu nationalist stand most directly and online you saw right-wing accounts sort of supporting this verdict using a language of promotion of Hindu culture, the tolerance of Hindu culture, and the inherent Hindu nature of India that had allowed for this sort of move to be made possible. The, the queer movement, of course, had only made this India before the British. The, the, the Hindu nationalist movement took it one step further and said India before the British and the Mughals in a sort of increased or sort of extension of a process that uh, Anjali Arundikar has very aptly termed as a, as a form of archival hermeneutics that often leads to counterproductive results, right? So in 2018, you see, see a sort of shift in the Hindu nationalism narrative that is gradually, generally embracing LGBTQ plus rights within a language of sort of Hindu dharmic inclusion and the sort of essential um, acceptance of queerness within Hinduism. And online, you see the 370-377 connection take new forms being reworked in, in very unique and strange ways. So in 2018, you see the same accounts that had opposed Section 377's um, overturning in 2013 turn to a narrative that says, well, now that Section 377 is overturned, the Supreme Court should remove Article 370. And they frame this within a broader language of equality in the first instance of the weaponization of the language of LGBTQ plus rights in the context of Kashmir. So it said that you remove section 377 because everybody is equal and everybody should have equal rights, including queer people. You must now also remove article 370 on the same grounds of equality, giving Indians and Kashmiris equal rights, because why can't Indians marry Kashmiri right, Kashmiris right now or become citizens of Kashmir? Why can't Indians buy land in Kashmir? So this remains a, a relatively fringe narrative. It's promoted by a journalist called Aarti Tiku Singh, who's since gone on to become a prominent right-wing spokesperson and testified in the US Congress and other spaces. You see it also being put forward by uh, right-wing queer people themselves, including those uh, like Abhijita Yarmitra, who's a sort of commentator and, um, and right-wing queer activist who also writes on national security. And you see the sort of mushrooming of this argument that now that 377 is gone, the next step needs to be 370. It's also one that, of course, comes from the fact that the, the BJP government is in power. It hasn't fulfilled its electoral promise of removing Article 370 yet. Modi had announced way back in 2013 that Article 370 should go. 
five years down, Article 370 is still not gone. And the right wing is now placing its faith in the courtroom instead of in executive authority for such a transformation to come to fruition. Also building upon the ways in which the courtroom has become a sort of pseudo policymaking chamber for the government under this present government in title disputes like the Ayodhya temple dispute and the sort of resolution of the Babri Masjid, which was done again through the courtroom rather than through uh, the executive, but in a way that resembled the executive's will enforced through the judiciary, right? So in 2018, you see this narrative build up that first 377 must go, uh, then 370. And in 2019, the unprecedented, the, 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 the unprecedented happens again, which is the unilateral revocation of Article 370 by the Indian government um, in parliament, right? So the BJP in a surprise move on the 5th of August 2019 revokes Article 370 of the Indian constitution, effectively severing Kashmir's autonomous status and degrading the region from an autonomous status to the title of Union Territory, the region with the least amount of autonomy within the Indian Union. It also results in the partition of the, 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 the sort of erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir into Jammu and Kashmir as one union territory and the Dak as another union territory, sort of also disrupting um, the, the geographic boundaries of a disputed region under international law. This is accompanied by a communications blockade that has been one of the longest that Kashmir has ever seen and the most brutal and most totalitarian. Right. It's accompanied by a snapping of phone lines, all forms of um, digital communication, and a curfew that is enforced through one of the largest military deployments the Valley has ever seen. Um, this goes on for almost six months. There is complete radio silence from what is happening inside Kashmir. Every single major political leader is placed either under house arrest or put into prison. Any forms of protests and demonstrations are banned. And India, on the international scale, is facing massive amounts of global outrage around this sort of unilateral action and a flagrant violation of international law and territorial sovereignty. Amidst this, you see a sort of Indian state that is emboldened by its sort of second term that it's just been recently elected into, and also by um, its increased economic power that goes on firefighting mode, right? So, across the country and both, both domestically and internationally, you see the BJP and the Indian state at large justifying this action in various ways. So the first one is primarily that Kashmir is an internal issue and that India is free to do what it chooses within its territorial boundaries. The second is that it is, an, it is a form of economic emancipation and that this will actually lead to development in Kashmir, which is an argument that was used to get Modi elected to power in 2014. And the third one is, and the most nefarious one, is that this is actually an uh, it is actually a move that's intended to emancipate ordinary Kashmiris. Now, this builds upon a narrative that, um, but both Athar Zia and Simrin Mushtaq have pointed out earlier, of the sort of portrayal of Kashmiri women as oppressed and of Kashmir as being sort of economically underdeveloped because of its autonomous status. It also builds upon sort of standard tropes of Islamophobia that portray the Muslim woman in India as oppressed, which has played out in recent debates around the hijab. And it frames the entire debate in a sort of social emancipation context that sees the Indian state as almost an evangelical emancipatory presence in Kashmir. 
this argument takes three distinct strands. One is with the res with respect to the emancipation of women, and you see a lot of sort of um, arguments being put forth at the international stage about the emancipation of Kashmiri women. Uh, this is countered by Indian feminist groups as well to some degree, um, but continues nonetheless within the mainstream discourse. The second one is a discourse around caste. There's an argument made that because Kashmir enjoys autonomous status, um, oppressed caste do not enjoy the same privileges of reservation and other forms of affirmative action that they do and constitutional protection that they do within the Indian state, which they will now enjoy in Kashmir after the abrogation of Article 370. This is again um, splintering anti-caste movements within the country. Many anti-caste activists speak out against this form of caste washing um, and this, this justification, which often yields no concrete results. And the third one, which is a which is a, a fringe one, but yet an important one, is the justification of the abrogation of Article 370 and the revocation of autonomy as a victory for LGBTQ plus rights. The most prominent place in which this appears is in a debate by Chair Panda on NDTV against Shashi Tharoor of the Indian National Congress. It's targeted for a very domestic, liberal, elite, English-speaking audience that the BJP now needs to win favor with. Um, internationally, it finds way again with an article by Jay Panda for the BBC intended to sort of play the same move that the US played in many ways in the invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq and the same sort of homo-nationalist narrative that's been used in, in an emancipatory way to justify occupation in other parts of the world. Um, and it also finds its presence in people like the overseas wing chief of the BJP, who uses this to justify the abrogation of Article 370 in the US and leads actually uh, a series of talks in many cities facilitated by the Indian consulates and embassies that use this rhetoric to justify the abrogation of Article 370. Now, this strand is, is peculiar because it manages to connect Article 370 and Section 377 in a very direct way. The argument made here is that because India had overturned Section 377 through the Supreme Court judgment in 2018, um, that, that did not extend to Kashmir in 2018 because of the abrogation of Article 370. So the abrogation of Article 370 was necessary to create one nation, one law, one country, one rule that would allow for the extension of the privileges enjoyed by queer people in India to those enjoyed by queer people to those enjoyed by queer people in Kashmir. So an extension of these rights and a sort of direct correlation between Article 370 and Section 377 that was almost more nefarious. Than the initial one, which was which, which was just a similar language of equality. So you see a direct connection between these things, and this is promoted by some very prominent right-wing political accounts. It's promoted again by, by BJP spokespersons themselves, and it sees the transformation of what exists, existed as a diffused discourse of confusion into an organized sort of discourse of disinformation promulgated by the Indian state in sort of India and internationally around Kashmir. Now, very quickly, this is what Mona Bhan has called a transition from warfare to welfare. So she has traced how the development of dams in Kashmir, particularly in Doda and Kishtwad, has been used as a marker of development, as the panacea for the political resolution of the conflict, as the Indian state is the promoter of and sole enabler of development in the region. It also reflects what Nishantapadhyay and um, Nishantapadhyay primarily has called homo-Hindu nationalism, 
and the sort of conditional acceptance of queerness within Hindu nationalism, as long as queer people participate in the political project of Hindu nationalism. Very interestingly, it manages to create a Kashmir that is simultaneously queer and queerphobic, right? So Ananya Jahanara Kabir, Anitasha Kaul have spoken about the gendered imaginary of Kashmir. They've spoken about how Kashmir is feminized, Kashmiri men in particular are feminized, and the idea of Kashmir, the land of Kashmir has acquired a feminine lens in the Indian imaginary. Fabian Hartwell has built upon this to show how Kashmiri masculinity has actually been queered in many ways and takes up the example of Burhan Wani and discourse around Burhan Wani, which is almost homoerotic in nature to showcase how the Indian state portrays Kashmiri men as queer. And then it is countered by this sort of assertion that Kashmir is inherently queerphobic, Islam is inherently queerphobic, and that India must emancipate Kashmiris. And it reflects what Jasbir Puar has said, it's almost dialectic that operates within homonationalism of the queer yet queerphobic, and it's sort of seeping into uh, the sort of Indian state's imagination of Kashmir. Now, I think this is a particularly important move because it signals an almost ideological shift that is presenting a ideological framework that can accompany the settler colonial process that is currently underway in Kashmir. It uh, allows for the building of a social narrative that can be used um, to go beyond arguments of only grabbing land to now include a sort of um, moralistic imperative that justifies Indian presence in Kashmir. What then are the alternatives to this? I'm going to turn to this very quickly before um, taking questions because I know I've already run, I've been speaking for a while. Um, so the alternatives to this have been twofold. The first one has been a direct assertion by several legal scholars, including a former justice of the Jammu and Kashmir High Court and other sort of legal experts, including those who actually fought the Section 377 case in the Supreme Court, that the BJP's argument is patently false, right? The Supreme Court of India has enjoyed jurisdiction in Jammu and Kashmir since 1951. There has been a sort of dilution of autonomy way before the abrogation of Article 370. And the Jammu and Kashmir High Court has always had to conform with the sort of decision of the Supreme Court of India, so long as it relates to an exact provision of Kashmiri law as is being decided upon in Indian law. So 1992 case actually um, makes it abundantly clear that if the Indian state rules on a provision of the Indian penal code, which is replicated or is the same provision in the Ranbir penal code, which is Kashmir's own penal code granted under autonomy, then the ruling of the Supreme Court of India will apply to Jammu and Kashmir and cannot be challenged even by the Jammu and Kashmir High Court. Right? So this is the argument that has been used, which is to say that the very foundation of Kashmiri uh, of the BJP's discourse around queerness in Kashmir is false, and that this is a project of disinformation. It's a narrative that I've argued for um, at the time in 2019. Uh, it's a narrative that has been built upon by several others uh, who have also pointed out um, that the BJP's actions in Kashmir and its presentation of itself as an emancipator for queer people have not been matched by any action, right? So in um, 2018, actually, right before um, the abrogation of Article 370, you had uh, a government that was actually a 
coalition with the BJP in the state and uh, uh, a finance minister from Mehbooba Mufti's party introduced a provision in the Jammu and Kashmir budget after years of activism by the trans community and the queer community in Kashmir, which classified trans persons as economically weaker sections. And in a landmark decision, unlike anything seen in the subcontinent actually, except potentially for certain provisions made by individual provinces of the Khwaja Siraj in Pakistan, allowed for uh, subsidies to be granted to trans persons and special sort of allowances to also be made in this case. The BJP, after imposing precedence rule on Kashmir, which continues until today, has failed to implement that provision, has failed to also carry forward that budget, and has shown that the sort of commitment or the lip service to LGBTQ plus rights extends only peripherally. Um, this has also been the argument interestingly extended when uh, a group of protesters disrupted an event at SOAS in 2019, which was led by Kashmiri activists um, and which saw disruption by masked people who entered the event with a rainbow flag that said Article 370 is homophobic and argued that anyone arguing against Article 370 was actually being homophobic. So this is an international argument that has uh, been developed in response to arguments against the abrogation of Article 370 that has been countered by saying that, well, you didn't do much for the queer community after you came into power and neither does your sort of argument hold on, on legal or factual grounds. Very interestingly though, Rahul Rao has pointed out in a separate piece on the, the Citizenship Amendment Act, how such a narrative of a turn to constitutionalism and law particularly towards um, any framework that showcases the Indian state's inherent sort of gentility or benevolence in Kashmir has a darker side. He speaks about, um, and he speaks about how the Indian constitution became the rallying cry for Indian Muslims and sort of Indian Dalits and other allied marginalized communities at large during the Citizenship Amendment Act protest and how the upholding of that constitution means so little in Kashmir region that has been fighting to free itself from that very constitution. So what can a constitution mean to those who don't wish to be governed by it is this beautiful line that he writes in uh, philosophy now, philosophy, I think, um, that encapsulates what such an argumentation does. And Srimoy Ghosh, building upon that, um, further demonstrates how the very opposition to this argument is perniciously tied into a form of homonationalism that implicates itself in the gradual erosion of autonomy, because the only reason the BJP's argument does not hold water is that governments before the BJP, non-Hindu nationalist governments actually, had put in place provisions that removed Kashmiri autonomy bit by bit over the years in a project of the Indian state that has been the steady revocation of and steady assimilation of Kashmir into the Union of India. And so it, it requires then a turning back and asking, what does this opposition to homonationalism entail? Are we caught in a sort of process of homonationalism in opposing this? And then what does a sort of ethical opposition to this argument look like? And what frameworks can it take in a form of critical self-interrogation that demonstrates um, the complexity of dealing with forms of lawfare that have been deployed by the BGP's ideological apparatus in the region. So it's almost like between the devil and the deep blue sea, no argument really works here, and it requires some form of creative engagement to counter the discourse produced. So all in all, three very uh, disturbing, disturbing developments that are happening that we 
we aim to and hope to counter, and I love love feedbacks. Uh, one is the sort of transformation of Hindu nationalism and its attitude towards queerness from being inherently sort of excluding queers to now selectively assimilating queers as long as they participate in the Indian queer project. The second is the sort of transformation of queerness and its sort of um, encapsulation within homonational politics that require it to find effective ways of building solidarity and retaining um, forms of support for, for Kashmiri autonomy and, and, and genuine sort of intersectional solidarity. And the third is um, the situation of Kashmir as not just the site of, but also the production of discourses of homonationalism in India in very unique ways. Um, and just to shed light a little bit on this, it's interesting that the Indian state has never before used this argument. For example, in um, Nagaland, it's never used this argument in um, Bastar or within sort of Marxist strongholds. This argument has been uniquely used in Kashmir that reflects its sort of entanglements with homophobia, but also its wider implications for the sort of Indian states and Hindu nationalism's engagement with queerness in India as a whole. And as we move forward, I think it's going to be uh, important to, to engage with this discourse primarily to see ways to build intersectional solidarity and to also then understand ways in which this discourse can be countered in effective ways. And with that, I think I have spoken enough and I will leave the floor open to questions, comments, discussions, and anything of the sort. <laughs>